Welcome back to Physically Spiritual. Today, I'm excited to bring our first guest to the show, uh, Catholic psychologist and author, Dr. Greg Bataro. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Before we get started, I want to invite you to consider supporting everything we do here at Awaken Catholic by becoming a member of the Awakened Nation. To become a member of the Awakened Nation, go to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate. I'm also excited to announce a partnership with the app Hollow. That's H-A-L-L-O-W. Hollow is a Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. Go to our partner link at hollow.app forward slash awaken. And if you're interested in, in anything I'm publishing or um, going back to previous podcasts, reading my articles, go to becominggift.com. So today, as I said, I'm welcoming to the show Dr. Greg Bataro. He's a psychologist and the founder of the Catholic Psych Institute, the author of the book, The Mindful Catholic, and also co-authored with his wife, the book, Sitting with the Saints for Children. Uh, his newest projects are the Integrated Life Community, and he's put together a Mindful Catholic Classroom, a K-12 curriculum integrating the Catholic faith and mindfulness. Welcome to the show, Dr. Greg. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. I have to say, too, I, I love those pictures on the back of your wall. I'm going to enjoy <laughs> seeing, <laughs> seeing you and then also those beautiful pictures behind you. Well, thank you. Uh, so what I wanted to get started out is that... Um, Physically spiritual is all about the way that my journey is brought together, faith and reason, the way that my journey toward physical health and my spiritual journey have come together in this point. Um, so I wanted to open up to start out with your journey. Um, what led you to discover mindfulness and the importance of integration in your well, life? I, I, I am so curious to know more about your journey, and I, I'm happy to share mine with you because I've found so many points of overlap between like where we've both gotten and I can only imagine there's got to be similarities in the journey to get here. And there's like a very particular flavor of of integration that it's just not everybody's story. It's not necessarily where everybody lands. So for me, I've I've been able to sort of look back with a, a lot more clarity, um, certainly more than I had when I was there as a teenager and, and kind of going through my own stuff. But um, I was raised in a nominally Catholic family, um, but a very Italian family that emphasized family as the priority in life. And it's a strong, it's a pretty strong foundation. It, it worked pretty well until I was 17. My parents got a divorce. Oh. So it really shattered my foundation. And I recognized in that moment, in that period mm -hmm. of my life, a disintegration of your your experience lived experience of life versus the principles that you're supposedly um, orienting yourself towards and so when those two things were disintegrated it threw me into a tailspin and i was i was just really lost luckily i was at boston college as a freshman in college and i had a number of courses with peter kreeft and so he was my sort of like entrance into solid Catholic philosophy 
and um, understanding just number one, how to think, period, and then how to think about God, how to think about myself, how to think about this journey of life and learning and education. I transferred to Steubenville, so I picked up there and I went even further um, with a with I had Father Norris Clark teaching metaphysics, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and uh, just blessed beyond measure with these experiences and um, a number of great theologians at Steubenville that I was able to learn from there. Um, and then I was discerning a religious vocation, so I ended up um, joining the CFR Franciscan Friars of the Renewal and spent three and a half years there um, and spent a lot of time with Father Benedict Rochelle, who is one of the founders, and he was a psychologist. Hmm. And I, I already was, had a great interest in psychology, so the, the community was kind of helping me, forming me in that direction to almost be his apprentice. And then eventually the plan was I would I would kind of take over for some of his duties within the community. Um, long story short, it wasn't my vocation. I, I went through a lot of um, healing, a lot of deep prayer, you know, five hours of prayer a day for three and a half years in front of the Blessed Sacrament, spiritual direction of Father Benedict, like it, it works. <laughs> a lot of good things <laughs> happened. And um I realized that I had to heal these wounds from my parents' divorce. I discovered the true vocation I had to marriage. I left, uh, and then I went back to school. I I went to finish my doctorate in psychology. I met my wife and um, got uh, my degree and got married in 2012, moved to New York, started my practice, and now this is where I'm at. So now my, my whole professional vocation is based around this, wanting to share the joy and the peace that comes from really understanding integration as that's affected me in my life, and I want to give that to others. So that's mm-hmm. how I got here. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I, I love to see the way that the Lord is directing everything on this um, on this large scale. <laughs> I like to say that God plays the long game with us. Oh, yeah. So oftentimes in, in the individual decisions, we don't see his, his long-term plan. So like a, a part of my story is I was in the seminary for four years for our diocese. Mm. And um, so discerning into the, into the seminary and then out of the seminary, but then pondering um, in the Lord's eyes why he did that. Mm. Because I honestly did feel called to the priesthood, and then I honestly felt not to be a priest. Yeah. Um, so I believe he, he called me there for a purpose. And, um, and so he has that kind of long view of our life. He, he's, he's ultimately interested in eternity with him. And so often we're interested in feeling good right now. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't always line up. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so particularly, where did um, where did mindfulness come in that picture? You have the, the book, The Mindful Catholic, and that might be the thing that you're mo- maybe most famous for is the integration yeah. of mindfulness and Catholicism. Uh, where did that come into the story? Yeah, maybe maybe most notorious or <laughs> there's there's uh, it, it came into the story with, um, you know, honestly, it was initially um, my, just my training in psychology. And so, you know, I went to the Institute for Psychological Sciences for my doctorate and very Catholic program, um, very solid. And it's just part of a normal program of psychology to learn these interventions that are really well proven and, um, you know, evidence-based. And so, um, one particular modality of treatment used a lot of times in the inpatient population dealing with personality disorders or eating disorders, and now a lot of other things like severe anxiety or depression is called DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And one of the modules that you learn in DBT is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So that was the first place I encountered it. And then I was, it, it worked. I used it. I ran groups in the hospital for really distressed patients with severe mental illness. It worked. It was amazing. And um, then I got into my own private practice, started my my own practice, and, and I wanted to use it. And I was exploring more and more. And I was like, I, I wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of like, why is this working? What's actually happening in the brain? And I realized that it was almost experientially the same thing as what I was experiencing as a friar when Mm. Father Benedict was teaching me how to pray abandonment to divine providence, how to be in the presence of God in the present moment. And even though that is a completely different spiritual facet to it, what I was experiencing cognitively and, and mentally and emotionally lined up with everything that mindfulness is leading us towards. So I started to think about putting these things together and understanding what the overlap is. And I didn't really even, I wasn't familiar with the controversy around the Buddhist nature of mindfulness. Um, because frankly, nobody in the actual professional field would ever question whether or not mindfulness is safe to practice because it's so effective. And it's non-spiritual in a clinical um, practice, intentionally so. And so I, 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 w- I just desired to create an integration because I wanted to bring all these dots together and connect all these dots. But then as it turned out, there was all this backlash because of the Buddhist nature of um, you know, some forms of mindfulness. So then I realized, well, if we have a Catholic justification, if we have a framework in which we can understand what's unhealthy about Buddhist mindfulness, we would be much better positioned to understand what's healthy about Catholic mindfulness. Hmm. And then that became a little bit more of a focus of the work that I was doing. Yeah, I love that. And I think what you're doing is a very Catholic thing. Um, For those in the audience who might not know what mindfulness is, mindfulness in the most general broad sense is just paying attention to what's there, Hmm. just being mindful to what's in your consciousness in the present moment. And a lot of times that's uh, in your body awareness. Um, sort of developing that skill, that muscle of feeling what's in your body, where it's in your body, and just being attuned to that sensation. Um, And I believe you had mentioned uh, DBT and reading um, The Mindful Catholic. Did you mention, I I believe that the program seemed similar to the MBSR program, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction? Yeah, so so then, you know, the mindfulness is a component of DBT. That's where I first mm-hmm. learned it. As I explored it further, it's its own program, MBSR. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that was what was originally developed as this eight-week protocol to help reduce. The, the original intention was for chronic pain, su- those suffering mm-hmm. from chronic pain. And um, the, the, the originator of sort of American mindfulness is John Kabat-Zinn. He's a medical researcher at UMass, and he, he was working with his chronic pain patients to help them stop amplifying their suffering. Mm. This is a really important distinction, especially as Catholics. People think sometimes mindfulness is seeking to alleviate all suffering. And the fact is, like, that's definitely not the purpose of mindfulness, and that would not be consistent with our faith. And in fact, just the opposite, mindfulness helps us learn how to accept suffering and, Mm. and to allow for it even more. But it teaches us our avoidance tactics that we implicitly and unconsciously employ to actually avoid suffering. 
Mm-hmm. So by turning towards suffering, what ends up happening is that we, we restrict ourselves from amplifying the suffering that we otherwise have to accept. There's almost two kinds of suffering. Um, and, and it's like one is just the immediate providentially allowable, you know, this is what's the suffering is that we're given. And then there's what we do with it. And depending mm-hmm. on our participation in that experience, we may actually create more suffering for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we can learn how to not do that. So we can yeah. reduce suffering, but it's not the core of suffering. It's only stopping ourselves from amplifying the suffering that we're trying to avoid. Mm. Yeah. Like, like I said, I think what you're doing is very Catholic. I mean, if you look at the early church, there was a notion of the seeds of the logos that throughout ancient history and, and ancient philosophy, that this I- ancient idea of the logos, the word or the or the reason, the order, the hierarchy and creation, that there were these seeds or ideas um, throughout Greek philosophy and, and the culture of the time that then the church adapted. The church used that philosophy, that terminology, those cultural ideas in order to then explain its own teaching. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I think of a project like um, like St. Thomas Aquinas's work. I think largely what he's doing in the Summa is he's, he's um, integrating faith and reason using the best philosophy he had available to him through Aristotle, through Aquinas, through his own teachers, and then integrating it with all of the Catholic teaching up till that point. But then the way I, I think of the, the second part of the Summa, the first and second part of the second part, is he's almost like taking the best science of the 13th century and asking the question, how does this answer the question, how can I become holier? Mm. How can I become more and more what God's calling me to be? So whether it be his treatise on the passions or his treatise on virtue or his, his understanding of human um, knowledge or, uh, or uh, the moral action, in, in some sense, he's adapting the best science of his day to then explain how to live the truth, how to be mm-hmm. holy. Um, and it's almost like we've taken 800, 700 years and not updated it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like now there's this rupture between faith and science, between um, religion and, um, and what we discover through reason. And, and we're almost afraid to, to dig out those seeds of the logos. We're, we're afraid to discover the truth that's there. God's the author of creation and also the author of the scripture. So so we, sh- we should be able to approach the truth regardless of where it comes from with confidence because mm-hmm. we know the author of that truth. Um, so from my perspective, what you're doing is is the Catholic thing, mm. and it's what the church has been doing from the beginning. I, I, I Yeah, I feel that way. I, that really resonates, and I think that's a great way to think about it. As you're talking, I was thinking, like, we've really forgotten what it's like to be children. And and we've lost the innocence and the purity of just trusting implicitly the world around us. Mm. And then, you know, we, we want to make sense of the world around us. But somehow we build up these scales over our eyes as we go into adulthood. And then we're like, have this suspicion against mm. the world. And if we're going to be safe, if we're going to create something or receive something of our faith or religion... It's got to fit into this like compartmentalized box, mm. but we've actually removed it. And I imagine the, I think about the original apostles, like how, how, um, I don't know a different word besides just crazy, how crazy it would be for God to become incarnate and manifest himself in the context of fishing and eating at the table and mm. drinking wine 
and going to weddings with his mom and having friends. And like we've lost the humanity of Jesus mm. over time. I think we've just separated out from the incarnation. And it's like, you know, sit and think about like Jesus had particular friendships. You know, he's rolling into town. He wants to go see Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He doesn't want to see Wilfred. Like Wilfred never made it into the scripture pages, you know, but like, what does it mean to have a particular friendship, to be closer to some people, to be disappointed when people don't accept you when you're speaking in your own hometown or whatever? And yeah, so we've we've sort of like separated out our faith from the actual experience of our life around us, including science, including medicine, including, you know, just like the the pop culture you know, sort of fad of the day. And, and I would imagine that like, that was the context that Jesus was living in. And we should try to apply the same idea to our own lives. Yeah. As, as you're talking, um, what's coming to mind is you have this integrated life community. And I I know in your writing, you've, you've talked about this idea of integration and holiness. Um, And in the history of Catholic spirituality, there's this notion that Christ is sort of the prototype, you know, drawing back from the scripture when, when Christ is, um, uh, during the passion, I think Pilate proclaims, ecce homo, behold mm. the man. And there's this idea that to, to be his disciple is to imitate him. Um, so as you, as you're talking about the incarnation in Christ's humanity, um, it just strikes me that, that it, what we're really getting at is this idea of integration mm-hmm. to imitate Christ. Isn't just with how we pray or what's happening and the, the spiritual things in our life, but it, it's our whole life mm-hmm. um, from how we have friendship to how we eat, to how we sleep, to how we handle our stress, to how we, we pray and go to church. Um, so would you uh, maybe just say a little bit about the idea of the integrated life? Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, behind you on the wall, we have what I can assume to be our shared hero mm. shaving. I love it. I just, I love it. It's like, the man, you know, he's just, he's a man and he's doing what men do. He's Mm. doing what a human being does. And it's like that, like the way that JP two shaving in that picture, you know, I'm not going to try to project like knowing his heart at that moment in his life, but like knowing enough about what he lived and, and, and wrote about and experienced, like that's a moment of prayer for him. That's a moment Mm. of connection. You know, like to connect to the fact that God became manifest in this world and had hair on his face. Mm. Like these hairs on my face are like what God would have if he entered into creation. And like I can actually touch God in in that spiritual sense, entering into a communion with him, understanding my own humanity and knowing that that was modeled by him first, that we're made out of that model. So integrated life... Um, is is to live this way it's to constantly be bringing together every single facet like you said how we how we eat how we drink how we handle our stress how we treat people that work for us how we treat our bosses that we work for how we enter into every discernment how we go uh, on vacation how we read a book like literally every second of our lives is meant to be holy and and integration means Letting the veil be pulled away mm. and seeing that call to holiness in every moment. So that's, mm. I think we need to develop content and encouragement and support 
and reminders in our conversation and in our community that helps us all live that way without losing sight of that truth. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And and thinking of uh, John Paul II's life, um, you know, if, if John Paul II were a statistic, you would think he would have been set up to be pretty uh, unhealthy, you know, between his mother's death at a young age, his father's death yes. at a young age, enduring uh, the Nazi occupation, the communist occupation. You know, he had a lot of trauma in his life. Yeah. So if John Paul II were just a statistic, um, you know, you would have expected him not to turn out the way he turned out. Um, but on, on the other hand, I don't think he turned out the way he was just for spiritual reasons. I think there were, were things in his life, there was an authentic humanity. Uh, we saw this this beautiful spectrum of what it means to be an integrated person, whether it be him as an athlete or him as an artist, as mm. a poet, as a philosopher and a theologian, as a pastor, as a friend. Mm. Um, you know, he had this kind of holistic, beautiful approach um, that I've connected with so much in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's amazing to see that. I, I love that about him. I love that about St. Therese. Same thing. You know, her mom died when she was a little girl. She had like severe attachment issues. And, you know, if you look at like what what's what's pop psychology tell us, like, well, sign them up for a decade of therapy so we can sit around and, you know, blame mom and dad for the rest of their life. But that's not the whole story. That's we're all starting off from brokenness. We're all coming from concupiscence in one way or another. And that's the beauty of grace, and that's the beauty of the redemption, is that Christ enters into that humanity. He meets us in our brokenness, and he lifts us out of it. So JP2 had the gifts of intelligence, and he had that gift of, of that grace of prayer, where he was so early on entering so deep into you know, hours of, of relationship. Not prayer like he's just thumbing his rosaries and checking his box for the day, which is what we think about the spiritual life, but like real relationship with the perfection of humanity so that it could help remold and reform and heal his humanity towards that perfection. And then he started to live out of it in such a dramatic way. It's, it's totally inspiring. I, I, I can't get enough JP two all day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as we're talking, I'm just struck by, um, you know, I think adapting these truths that are discovered through science toward building the kingdom of God, I would say that it's actually our duty as Catholics to do that. Um, because, because if it truly works, if it's evidence-based, um, backed by research, and, and this is really healing people, whether it be mindfulness or, or some other discovery through psychology or medicine or, or some other scientific discipline, um, I think we have a certain level of duty as Catholics to try to discover the truth that's in that and integrate yeah. it with our faith. Um, because I, I think more and more and more as science progresses, people are able to find their answers away from the church. Right. People become more and more capable of living a life that's healed and that's comfortable um, without then also seeking God. Um, now, I think there's always a part of the human heart that remains unsatisfied and remains restless until they find the Lord. Um, but, but in my sense, there's this increasing illusion that we don't need God as technology progresses. Um, so I think by, by taking up these ideas and integrating them, um, we, we then demonstrate how it these things are even more effective when brought in light with the gospel, when oh, integrated yeah. with our Catholic faith. You know, so much of modern psychology, I think, assumes almost a Buddhist worldview, 
mm-hmm. um, when you read the literature. You know, when they talk about meditation, people almost assume you're talking about some Eastern form of meditation. Yeah. They, they almost disregard, like, of course, this isn't a Christian thing. Christian meditation must not be important. Now, no one's funding research studies of Lexio Divina. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so there's almost this wholesale discount of what the truth has to offer in these realms. Um, so I think what we're talking about here is so important, both for the average person in our society that's looking for healing, but then also um, to continue to become more and more effective apostles and, and uh, evangelists in the world. Oh, amen. And I think, unfortunately, we're all in the same culture. So like, even if we don't believe the Buddhist worldview, we're still suffering from the disintegration that is being necessitated by mm-hmm. society. And so like, that's what the, that's the, like this profound strength of the new evangelization is that even though it was originally the call to go out, that it was a new evangelization of evangelizing like outwards, like go evangelizing the world. But as soon as it became a real thing, that's when everybody looked around and it was like, Oh, we need this too. Mm. So this act of going out actually comes back in and it becomes that reflective and reflexive thing at the same time where it's, it's working in both directions. And it, that's because, the truth, capital T, is a lifting of the veil to see the entire created order in light of the uncreated, to, to see everything in light of the revelation of Christ. And there's nothing re- removed from that. There's nothing compartmentalized from that besides evil itself. But even that is only a distortion of what's really there. So we have this key. Mm. And if, if, if we claim to have the key, we have a responsibility to put it in the lock and turn it and unlock what is blocked for everybody else who mm. doesn't have the key. Yeah. And it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's a grave responsibility. It's not enough to just sort of do our, our thing and be comfortable and feel good about ourselves. But like, we have to be consistent. We have to be contemporary we have to be engaging with culture we cannot be afraid of maybe being wrong about something you know maybe misstepping some way you know people think about like when social media became a big thing it's like how much should we go out into social media should we be on facebook should we have a podcast you know and like there weren't clear answers but it's the responsibility to do it and to do it with pure intention and praying and spiritual direction and confession and, you know, trying to do self-mortification and, but like, this is our responsibility. And maybe we learn, maybe we get scuffed up. Maybe we realize we're not perfect and we're not actually God ourselves. And, you know, we have to accept that, but it's not enough. Being afraid of that is not enough to, to slink back from the responsibility. Yeah, the the words of John Paul II are ringing in my head again. The um, cast out into the deep. Yes, you know the, the fact that we're we're going to make mistakes yeah. as we're trying to integrate faith and reason, and in, in especially applying it to people's lives, which are always messy. You know, w- there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be ways that our understanding is refined over time, um, but that's not an excuse not to attempt it. <laughs> exactly. You know? And yeah. yeah, my my wife uh, was watching Brene Brown last night, and um, she loves her her videos, her documentaries, and stuff. And she 
um, she was talking about, it's the one about being brave. And she was saying like, you know, when you're in the arena fighting, like the people that are in there fighting with you, maybe alongside of you, maybe against you, but those are the people that you actually need to be concerned with and like think about. And not all the people that are up in the nosebleed seats, you know, who are too afraid to get in the arena to fight themselves. And and this has been like a recurring thing. It's like, you're going to get beat up a little bit. You know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have to lick your wounds. And most of it's probably going to be the wounds of pride. But like, we need to fight. We need to be uh, courageous and we need to listen to JP too and not be afraid to go out into the streets and into the dark places and into the, into the deep. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that fight. Um, so we have this idea of integration and, and I ponder a lot um, the, the relationship between health, like physical health and holiness, mm-hmm. like, like our health and holiness synonyms or our integration and holiness synonyms. Because I, I hear voices, I've heard people make the argument, well, this saint was overweight, <laughs> so mm. being at a healthy weight isn't essential to be holy. Or other people point out, um, you know, this health struggled, or this saint had many diseases that they struggled with, or, or physical ailments. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't think we can argue those sort of extreme cases to say that health isn't at all important, sure. or that it's a completely secondary thing. Um, so in, in your mind, are integration and holiness synonyms? And how do you think of that? Yeah, so I, I think they are synonyms. Mm-hmm. And I think that, number one, the premise of using a saint to justify an argument is completely false. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't say that saints were perfect on earth. That's not what canonization means. And um, and we can't, number two, even if it did mean that, we can't assume to know the inner motivations, the physiology, the constitution of a person from history. So if, you know, maybe Aquinas had a a thyroid problem that was, you know, we wouldn't know was diagnosed or not, you know, or maybe, you know, whatever the case might be, there's all these different examples. Mental illness is a whole nother huge spectrum that overlaps so many different facets. And we can see uh, Catherine of Siena would have definitely been diagnosed as having an eating disorder. She probably did have an eating disorder, you know, but again, like we can't get into her heart and know her intentions and know her awareness of whatever those things were at that time in her context of her culture and, and what she was thinking. So what does canonization mean? This is a a saint who's declared is in heaven now. Like that's what we can we can look to and and of course there are they're an example to see part of their life but like something I was struck by when um, I was even learning like what that designation of being a doctor of the church means even a doctor of the church it doesn't mean that everything they ever said and writ and, and wrote or did is is magisterial teaching gospel truth. Hmm. You know, that was like mind blowing for me when I found that out. It's like, well, why are we calling it a doctor of the church? What's the point? You know, but there's a beautiful point. And they have this novel contribution to theology and and they have a doctrine that that's sort of like where their designation is focused around. But you might find some random letter where they have some random aside and they say something that you, you, you can't necessarily decide to form your whole spiritual life around. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot more that needs to be discerned there. So, so that's my first thing. The second thing would to be to say, um, it is it is a a misunderstanding of our own humanity that is more of an issue today than it ever was in the past, and that mm-hmm. has to do with the Cartesian dualistic understanding of the self. Mm-hmm. You know, so post Cartesian uh, dualism. We think of ourselves as a spirit and a body, as two separate entities. And again, I was saying, even like within healthy Catholic circles, it's just human to think based on culture, movies, commercials, songs. Like we grow up embedded and immersed in this mentality that is radically different from where culture would have been in history. And so we think of ourselves as a ghost in a machine. We think about the spirit as something that will shed this body at death and, you know, rise to heaven, freed from the shackles of this sickly material. And and this is like this Manichaean, dualistic, horrible mm. heresy. But we all just believe it. Yeah. And and not like consciously. Like if somebody said like, are you know, is hylomorphism true? You'd be like, of course it is. But then you're still sort of like in your child that's childlike fantasies thinking about death, still think about Aunt Edna floating out of her coffin going up into heaven. You know, so like that's still implicit in our cultural understanding of self. So when it comes to questions like this, we can't uh, we can't negate the influence of that assumption about our very self. And then it's like, well, of course we could separate bodily health from spiritual health because the body is separate from the spirit. But actually, of course, you can't separate bodily health from spiritual health because the body is not separate from the spirit. Hmm. There, We are actually united. So we can't talk yeah. about one without the other. And that should be more of the conversation, not about whether being over- overweight is okay, but who are we really? Are we actually a unity of body and spirit? Hmm. Yeah, I love that. All of that. Because one, the saints were people with flaws and with um, with their own foibles, with their personality, with their struggles. Um, so I think sometimes our the way we think about the saint reveals a subtle kind of Pelagianism in our mind, which is yeah. a, a heresy of salvation by works. Mm. That because the saints were so holy, they didn't need God's mercy. <laughs> but even the saints are saved by Christ's sacrifice yeah. on the cross and saved by God's mercy. Um, so, so we're not saying by canonizing them, that they were sinless or, or perfect in every way. Right. Um, so we can re- we can accept and see their struggles, but then see how they endured and persevered and grew and, and did the Lord's work in the midst of their struggles and connect yeah. with that on a real human level. These are yeah. real people we can know and connect with. Um, and then also what you said about, um, about the idea of hylomorphism in this dualism that's so deep in our culture. Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about, or I'd mentioned different kinds of memory, kind of mm-hmm. the two main categories of explicit memory and implicit memory. Um, and the explicit memories are like the things, the ideas that we can remember or the, the narrative things from our past, where the implicit memories are the things we don't explicitly call to mind as images or or as uh, as words, but they still affect us emotionally. And so they are a lot of times what's pushing our behavior or driving our behavior. Um, so in, in, in one sense, I think we've, we've maybe gotten rid of the, the dualistic heresy from our explicit memory, but mm. it kind of lingers in our implicit memory. Yeah. 
And the thing is that the education that's required to change an implicit memory is different than the kind of education that's required to change an explicit memory. I can change my mind, I can change my explicit memories just by reading a book and learning an idea. Yeah. But transforming my implicit memories takes having a different experience, mm -hmm. that my body experiences something different and comes to adapt to a new environment and new choices. Yeah. Um, so talking about the idea of the integrated life, um, kind of piggybacking on that idea of what kind of education is necessary to change those implicit memories, um, what, what's really required to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think, um, I think a fundamental principle of changing implicit memory is relationship. Mm. I think we have to start there. We are built in the image of God, man and woman. He made us. And he says, you know, the, the Trinitarian nature of God creating us in his image in relationship. And right from our conception, we are receiving what's given to us through our prenatal environment. You know, the, the, the relationship between mom and dad forms a mom's emotional constitution and creates a, an endocrine environment that forms the, for the baby. And so we are formed in that environment right from day one. We're born into that environment. And then it's about attachment, attunement, relationship is forming everything about who we are or deforming or malforming us. So there's the education or the miseducation of the person that occurs from the beginning in relationship. That's why the family is called the school of love. We're learning at the school who we are, what love is, what we're made for. And then that's the environment that's forming all of that implicit memory, all that sense of self. The ego is formed, the ego being the sense of self. And so um, as we progress, we are affected by the wounds by the miseducation that we receive in life, whether it's from peers, parents, uh, community, trauma happens, or just simply, you know, having sibling rivalry or, or something else. But wherever there's some kind of education that's occurring that teaches us something other than our infinite dignity and worth being made in the image of God, we are being miseducated. So we're, we're all suffering from miseducation one way or another, and we don't all need to have abusive parents to, to have been miseducated. Mm. Then we, we grow into adolescence and into adulthood. So we start to realize we can actually take um, responsibility for our own curriculum mm. and we can learn new truths. We start with the explicit memory but then we can let that trickle down through relationships, through experiences, through understanding how to embed ourselves in an environment that will hopefully reform and um, and convert us at that deepest level. Yeah. What you're saying about relationship, I think, rings through the whole tradition. Because thinking all the way back to Aristotle, a pre-Christian philosopher, in the Nicomachean Ethics, he talks about virtue. And in the end, he asks the question, well, how do you become more virtuous or more vicious? Mm. And he says it's friendship. Yes. It's the people you're spending time with or what's moving you up the ladder toward virtue or down toward vice. Yes. And then St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, picking up on that. Um, and then in a Christian notion, we can think of that our, our relationship with God is a real relationship. We yeah. have friendship with Christ. So there is 
in, through our spirituality, a reformation of the implicit memories. This but then it. also, the whole scripture is a story of instrumentality. God chooses to use people to do his work. And our life isn't an exception to that. So and God the, has chosen people to do that work in our life too. Like I, lo- I think about Peter and I love the friendships of Christ and I love his disciples and apostles and these moments are so rich that we could spend the rest of our life just unpacking what this means for our own humanity. But Peter, like even after the, the bread of life discourse and Jesus is like, you know, who do you say I am? And he's like questioning and he's all this stuff. And like, he's like, are you going to leave? And Peter doesn't have a good answer. He doesn't know, like, he doesn't know the discourse. He doesn't know the theology. He doesn't know, he doesn't have the explicit memory formed. He doesn't have, like, the truth. But he's just like, but to whom else would we go? Yeah. It's you. It's us. It's, you called me. I responded. We're in relationship. Like, I I have nowhere else to go. So, Mm -hmm. like, I'm working it out still. But and when when and when he when Christ calls when the child the child and and they're arguing about who's first and he's like unless you turn this struck me I was reading this yesterday unless you turn and become like this child so let's pause for a minute these are his closest friends and they're not doing it right like they're messing up they're arguing about who's first. And Jesus, who's loving them, pouring out so much love on them that they wouldn't want to go anywhere else. That's the kind of friendship they have. But he's still calling them out and being like, you have to actually turn. You have to change your ways. Unless you convert, you will not even enter the heaven, the kingdom that I'm proclaiming to you. It's like, mm-hmm. how? when do we allow that complexity of relationship to exist? Like we form our friendships yeah. around who agrees with us and who's doing it right. It's like, what, what did Jesus do? Like, radically different than that. Like, his love is beyond understanding. Like, how he could love somebody, actually love another human being at that level. And it's, that's, but that's it. Like, that relationship was there. And then it allows for the transformation. It allows for the turning. It allows for the conversion. And ultimately, it brings us all to where he is. Yeah, as, as you're talking, I, I'm just thinking of, that in those moments, Christ is speaking from his heart. Um, I, I, in the past, I, I've erred more toward, you know, the, the separated spirit side. The um, and, and, and in some heresies, it's like God is is sort of controlling Jesus's body from heaven with a remote control. Yeah. So, so there's this idea that it was, is Jesus just asking those questions for the sake of the apostles? Or in those moments, is Jesus really being authentic? Mm. Like, what did Jesus feel in his heart when he asked Peter, will you leave me too? Mm. Like, what, like, that's not that's not a cold statement. That's not a calculated statement. Yeah. That's, that's somebody's heart, broken heart, being open and vulnerable to someone they love. Oh, gosh, that's so beautiful. It's so vulnerable. Mm. It's, it's, it's so challenging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could talk about this all day, um, but before we we end, I want to make sure people can find you and get connected with everything you're doing, because um, I know the work you're doing in the church is important. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about all this, um, I hope we but get I don't to. want to keep you all day. Um, so we'd mentioned a little bit the integrated life community, 
That's mm -hmm. one of, of your newest initiatives. Just tell the audience a little bit, what is the integrated life community and how can they plug in? Yeah. So, you know, my work personally, like I said, I'm constantly trying to come up with ways to share these, these blessings that God has given me in my life. And so one of the manifestations recently is to create a community, a, a, an online membership to facilitate and be a vehicle for a lot of these different elements that, you know, we're finding in psychology is really necessary. So content is necessary. Like we need good ideas. We need truth. We need to read good books. We need good courses that teach the material. It's not enough, but it is an important part of it. So, um, this membership includes a lot of courses, basically all the courses that I've created, videos, things that are related to Catholic mindfulness, like we've talked about. Um, but there's, you know, marriage and dating and parenting and vocation and discernment. Um, I have a second course of Catholic mindfulness. It's really the sort of like sequel, which is really about discernment of spirits. Mm -hmm. Have It has like a much more Ignatian uh, spirituality to it with... Um, once we kind of understand what's happening in the present moment interiorly, we can then follow these rules of discernment and they can help us to make judgments on whether we're being moved towards or away from God in this particular moment. And then everything can actually move us towards God because if we know we're being challenged away from him, we can act against it and we can actually go back towards him again. So like everything is about bringing us to God. So that's, that's the second course. It's all involved in that, uh, all included in that community. And then there's, um, community, which is relationship, which is really necessary. So we have forums, we have messaging that's embedded so people can communicate with each other. And then we have some coaching available as well. So all of our mm -hmm. Catholic psych team is available to walk with people going through the material. So it's not just, here's a book, go and read it. It's here, check out chapter one. Now tell me what you think. Let's talk about it. How does it apply to your life? What can you do to actually implement these truths in your life? And, and that's how the coaching component comes in. So it's, it's content, community, and coaching all wrapped up in this, in this one membership. So that's called the integrated life. Um, and, and this and all those courses either individually or together are at our website, which is catholicpsych.com. And then the resources specifically you can find at catholicpsych.com slash store. And, and that's where you can find all this stuff. We have some free downloads. We have paid courses. We have the membership. We have basically all that. Yeah, whole spectrum. And and also the Catholic Psych Institute is an active uh, practice, right? Do you right. offer like telehealth <laughs> services? Yeah, we do. We have 13 therapists currently that are offering psychotherapy. So um, we've been doing remote therapy through online, um, you know, platforms using, you know, Zoom or VC is one that we use or Skype or whatever. Um, and now the whole world is sort of caught up and realized that that works. And it's now it's absolutely necessary since our offices are closed for in-person visits, but yeah, we can, um, there's, there's a contact form there if you're looking for help in any particular issue. Um, and you can reach out and we'll be in touch to kind of set up a, a conversation with the clinical coordinator to see what we might be able to do to help you. All right. Thank you. Well, it's catholicpsych.com. Um, you have the integrated life community, you have online courses, you can get the mindful Catholic book sitting with the saints for your children. The, the Catholic uh, mindfulness, was it curriculum? Uh, the, the Catholic mindful Catholic classroom, the K-12 curriculum, mm -hmm. um, or you can go for counseling. So it's it's really a great resource, and I would encourage anyone in the audience, um, if you're, if you're uh, listening to this and thinking, well, where do I start with this kind of integration, to plug in with one of those resources? Maybe you don't feel like you have the people in your life to have that kind of relationship. Well, 
counseling is a real relationship and also the, um, the integrated life community, those can be great places to start. So I would encourage you to, um, to check out all those resources. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Dr. Greg, our first guest. Um, hopefully everyone in the audience loved it. I, I enjoyed this profoundly and learned a lot. Um, so thank you for your time and for your ideas and the beautiful work you're doing for the Lord. Oh, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure being here with you. I've enjoyed this conversation. I really look forward to uh, to speaking more. Well, before we end, I would just encourage you, if you want to support everything we're doing here at Awaken Catholic, to uh, join the Awaken Nation at awakencatholic.org forward slash donate. We're also partners with Holo. Holo is a Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. That's H-A-L-L-O-W dot app forward slash awaken. Maybe uh, maybe version 2.0 will include mindfulness too. <laughs> I hope to so. give them a call. Yeah. And, um, and if you're interested in anything that I've written or published, uh, just head over to my site, becominggift.com. This show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hollow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org slash donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hello.app slash awaken.